0: You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Marty Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. Maris testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California legislature. She served as a privacy expert for numerous court cases nationwide and at a White House press conference featured on C-SPAN. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including our own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit kci.org slash privacypiracy. Mari, right, what's our show about this morning?
1: Lloyd, today our show is fascinating because it's about hacking, and that's going to include hacking into the Democratic National Committee system. So I am just thrilled that we are welcoming back one of our very favorite guests who has to come on at least once or twice a year because she is brilliant, Rebecca Harold and, and what I love about her is that we've got this woman techie. <laughs> Woman security specialist. She's just such a great expert and such a wonderful person. And she's coming to us from Iowa. Rebecca has over 25 years of experience engineering in uh, systems design and information security, privacy, compliance experience. And she is CEO of the Privacy Professor. And that is a consultancy firm that she established back in 2004. She's also the co-founder and president of, uh, I'm going to say, S-I-M-B-U-S 360, Simba's 360 Information Security, Privacy, Technology, and Compliance, Cloud Services. And she has authored 18 books and hundreds of articles, and I get her newsletter all the time. I can't wait to get it to see what's going on. Rebecca has appeared, um, she appears once or twice um, monthly on CW Iowa live morning television show to raise public awareness of current security and privacy topics. She has gotten so many awards and so many things I could go on and on and on, but I just want to tell you she is often interviewed and quoted in diverse broadcasts and publications. She holds every kind of letter after her name from CISSP to CISA to CISM and more and more and more, and she's a CIPP. <laughs> so um, you can find out more about her at our website at privacypiracy.org and also at privacyprofessor.org, privacyguidance.com, and www.simbus360.com. So lots of places, and if you just type in her name, Rebecca Harold, she will come up all over the Internet as well. So, Rebecca, we love you. Thank you so much for joining us again.
2: Well, thank you so much, Mario. I always really enjoy speaking with you about these uh, very interesting topics.
1: Well boy, we've got the, we're we're right in the heart of election cycle, right? And there has been so much going on recently. We've heard about hacking and what's going on. So who hacked the Democratic National Committee systems?
2: Yes, well it definitely is full of intrigue, isn't it? And and all of the signs and evidence is kind of pointing to the Russians a couple of Russian groups that did it. And, you know, some people said, oh, well, the Russians probably somebody else did. But why I'm thinking that they probably did is because there have been four completely different security firms who specialize in doing forensics and doing security research. And each of those four have come down on the decision that, you know, all of the um, indications show that it probably is one of the Russian uh, groups that actually did the hacking. Uh, Russia is pretty, pretty famous for uh, trying to get into the different systems, not only in the U.S., but also for other countries. And they have a couple of Hacking groups that are state-sponsored, and those groups have some pretty unique um, types of digital fingerprints, if you will, characteristics that uh, point to them as being the ones that probably did it. So, one of these groups goes by the name of Cozy Bear. Um, <laughs> I know that you. you uh, name. They also have an alias, as if they need an alias, but their alias is Apartment 29, and they've been, I know, <laughs> they've been known, and I don't know if they gave themselves these names or if that's something that our U.S. researchers gave to them, but um, they've actually uh, been known to have successfully hacked into the unclassified networks of uh, different government agencies such as the White House, the State Department, uh, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, and so on. So, they're very active. And the other group that's known to be hacking into U.S. uh, systems is called Fancy Bear. So, we have Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear, and Fancy Bear also has an alias of Apartment 28, or APT 28.
1: They're right Um, next door. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're right next door Probably a lot of my techie friends will, will say When they hear me say that They'll say, that's not uh, apartment, that's APT So, yes, to my techie friends out there You're right, APT29, APT28 But I I like to say apartment Just because it, it helps me to remember those three letters <laughs> But uh, they are a separate hacking organization from Russia and they've also been very active, and they've, known, uh, they've been known to have actually hacked into, again, the non-classified systems of the different areas, such as the aerospace industry, uh, Department of Defense, the energy space, uh, different types of uh, retail space. So, so they're targeting a little bit different uh, victims than what the cozy bear folks are, but it, the, the fingerprints and the signs, uh, the evidence kind of is pointing to them.
1: So, what do you think is the reason why they're doing this? Do you think they're also, well, let's let's first find out why you think that the Russians would do this to the DNC. But what are they looking well, for?
2: Yeah, well, you know, for a long time, uh, then, and it's not just Russia, it's other countries too that want to have a competitive edge with the U.S., such as China. So uh, with regard to just in general, they always want to know if they can find, you know, classified information that might give them an edge over us in, let's say, trade or uh, business or uh, maybe we have some new inventions that they want. Now, Now that they're targeting the actual DNC, and, you know, just because we haven't heard anything about them getting into the Republican systems or the Libertarians or the Green Party, that doesn't mean that they haven't gotten into their systems either. So when I heard that they had gotten into the DNCs, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, well, that means they're probably also trying to get into all the other political parties to get data too, but it's kind of scary because um, why would they want to get into our uh, political files when historically they've been wanting to get in to find out you know, government plans, military plans, business plans, and so on, and it, it concerns a lot of people to think, well, are they trying to get data or information that they can then use to maybe try to have an influence? Over our um, elections. Right. And yeah. that's one, you probably heard that as one of the theories as well. And, you know, another theory is well, maybe someone's uh, urging them to do this too. Or paying them. We don't them. really. Or <laughs> well, paying them, yeah. <laughs> they might be paying them, or they might be making a deal with them. The fact is, right now, we really don't know the motivation, but we do know that uh, that they were able to get in and then they decided that they were going to release a lot of what they found out to the public. So why did they release it to the public when typically they have not in the past, they just used it for their own um, motives, internal motives? And so that, that is a big concern to a lot of folks that they're trying to manipulate maybe, uh, the decisions that are being made in the U.S. by making, uh, selectively making the information that they've collected, uh, publicly known. So that, that is a concern.
1: And, and to embarrass, because we've got, we saw that Mm -hmm. there were resignations to embarrass or to, it, it does look manipulative, doesn't it? it? It
2: does. And, um, It is a concern. I mean, if not to manipulate it, like you said. Maybe someone is telling them, you know, if you help us out with this, then we'll help you out uh, with something uh, as well. So we don't really know the motive other than it just seems like maybe for embarrassment, maybe uh, because maybe, who knows, they might have a vendetta of some type against some of the folks that they've released that information right. on also, you know, maybe they've been embarrassed by some of them before, and they're like, well, now we have our chance to embarrass them back. So uh, it, I think that's a, a mystery at this point. It will be interesting if we ever get that mystery for motivation actually solved or buying hard data to uh, to attribute to it.
1: You know, when we when we hear about all these hacking into companies and we hear about hacking into governmental agencies, is there any way to really prevent this? Well, you know, it's
2: complex because in our current systems, we have such complexity. We have the system that is the primary system where, Applications reside running on different types of operating systems. You know, those operating systems all have vulnerabilities that are constantly being discovered. The applications on them have vulnerabilities. But then, just think about in today's world how everybody who uses those systems also have their own systems then that they connect to, into them with. So let's say if you have a laptop or a smartphone that you use or that one of the, the uh, people who have been cleared to get access into these systems, they might be accessing it remotely through Wi-Fi. So you have Wi-Fi vulnerabilities that could be exploited. They might be using their smartphones or their laptops, and those could have some vulnerabilities. Um, people who have access are, are human. And so human frailties lead to having social engineering and phishing attacks, being able to exploit uh, that access and get be able to get into them. So as an example, just think, if somebody had a laptop and let's say they also had email that they read from that laptop and they fell for a phishing attempt, And after they fell for it, maybe they clicked on a link and they went out to a site and unbeknownst to them, perhaps there was code that was loaded onto their laptop so that whenever they connected to another system, that uh, that code would be collecting data in the background and sending it out to someone in another country. They might not even realize that because they would be um, a, a victim and they didn't know it, of a phishing attempt or a social engineering attempt. So the complexity of how we do communications today and how our systems are built today really makes it so important for those who are responsible for our systems to have many layers of security and controls for the administrative areas, which would be the humans and the policies and procedures, for technology to make sure that everything is being encrypted and, and uh, you have access controls and firewalls up, and then physical security. I mean, just think about everybody that you hear about in the news who either has lost their smartphone and then somebody's able to use it to get into some sensitive system or they had their laptop stolen or somebody has actually uh, stolen hard-copy papers that give directions on how to get into these systems. So I guess the the bottom line is we have a very, very complex information um, and data uh, system environment today, and all it takes for any of these hackers to get into a system is to find one vulnerability that they can exploit and get into that system. So it's very incumbent upon those of us who use these systems and those who are responsible for the security of those systems to have all these different layers of security control to try to to plug all those holes because all it takes for a hacker is just one um, vulnerable pathway into a system and then boom, they're in, even though you might have had dozens of other security holes in there. and and again, hacking the human is one of the easiest way uh, to get into a
1: system. Right? They always say that the human is the human factor is the weakest link. But you know mm-hmm. what I was thinking when we've been just talking about you know the election coming up in November of next year, and wow. So what about? Um, you know, that's coming up really soon. Mm-hmm. What about the voting? You know, uh, that's all electronic now. You know, you, you don't go in and, I mean, everything becomes a, a electronic voting. What could happen with our voting machines? Well, there's a
2: lot that could happen. And, Mari, I'm really concerned about our voting systems because right now there are so many different voting systems. I mean, each state determines how their citizens within each state and territory is going to vote, right? So, they are making decisions upon the voting systems and the voting methods that they're using, and what's really scary is a lot of research has shown that any of these voting machines, perhaps they were certified when they were originally put in uh, to use, but You know, a lot of these haven't been uh, changed in 10 to 15 years. Oh, my God! So, yeah, you you have old Diebold uh, voting machines. You have old ABS WinVote machines. You have many other machines. And there have been different groups such as SRI International, and they've done some reviews of these machines. And, for instance, they gave the ABS WinVote machine um, which is used in different states, they gave it an F- minus for security.
1: Oh, my goodness. Because,
2: yeah, it had, they have it in any locations. And, again, it's up to each of the districts to make sure they keep their machines updated and patched. But they found that a lot of locations did not keep their systems patched. Uh, their oh. operating systems and, and the applications. They found some that were still running on Windows XP, oh, which no. yeah. has not been supported. They find they found some that uh, did not have any passwords at all. That to be able to get into them, they found some that did have passwords. Many had passwords such as. A, B, C, D, E, oh. and another pa- others had passwords that were admin, and others had passwords that were simply password. So, you know, th- these systems have really poor security that hasn't been changed since they were first certified to be used 10, 15 years ago. And then some that are now using Wi-Fi to communicate... Mm-hmm. Um, the Wi-Fi is either not encrypted, which means that anyone sitting in the vicinity, let's say out in the parking lot, outside of the election center, might be able to get into the system and change the system, um, or do other things to inject malicious code that could alter the results of the, the voting, oh, the man. results of the elections. I mean, That's something that I don't understand why government doesn't have some sort of rule or policy that says each major year, even each year, before election season, you need to do a risk assessment of your voting systems to make sure that they're truly secure. But that just does not happen.
1: Wow. Would it ever be more secure if everybody were able to vote online and had like, you know, like I go and I pay my taxes online, right? Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I don't well, know how secure that is either, but <laughs> I'm just thinking yeah. that at least there it, it would seem that it could be one central place that they could spend the money to work on security rather than each state trying to keep buying new machines, et cetera, right? I don't know. Am I wrong? Yeah. Well, they aren't really buying new machines all the time. That's one of the problems. Well, that's but, what I mean. That's what they should <laughs> be doing. <laughs> yeah. But certainly, um,
2: some of the problems with Internet voting, I mean, that would be ideal. But you need to think about, okay, well, how are you going to allow Internet voting? Like you said, you know, you gave an example of being to do things, doing things uh, through the Internet. And as an example from Iowa here, they just recently allowed for driver's license renewals over the Internet.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: when I first heard that, I thought, holy cow, how are they going to secure that? But what they're doing is it's not like anybody can just get on from their laptop or smartphone and uh, renew their driver's license. They have to go to a kiosk that has been certified as being able do those types of um, activities with regard to renewing it. Because really with the internet voting, some of your biggest problems is number one, how do you know that the person who they say they are is actually that person who's doing the voting? So how how do you validate that that they really are them? How do you keep, um, if you're allowing all these different types of endpoints to be coming in to do the voting, how do you make sure that they all are secure and have not had somebody else maybe get into the system unbeknownst to the person who is using it and doing the voting for them? Uh, So with Internet voting, and some places do allow for Internet voting, but, you know, they do it through those kiosks largely, and uh, because of that additional complexity, it does add, some vulnerabilities into the process, especially with, like, the Wi-Fi. Can you -hmm. imagine if um, people were all voting from Starbucks or somewhere and they're all getting on through the free, unsecured Wi-Fi network? I mean, if I wanted to sit in there knowing that (laughs) people were going to be going to Starbucks or some other coffee shop, maybe they advertised an election day, She'll come here and vote and have right. a coffee while you're voting. Well, shoot, I'd go in there as a hacker, and I would just turn on my um, my network scanner to see what kind of traffic is going over it, and then I'd go in and, and alter what I could if I wanted to, you know, have um, an impact on the elections, if I wanted to throw the vote, if you will.
1: You know, I, you're right, and the system now seems like it's so easy to hack, though. I'm thinking about how they're all volunteers, so they're, I'm, I'm worried about the physical security of who's bringing in those machines, <laughs> right? I mean, I, uh. I, in recent years, I vote by mail because mm-hmm. I don't even want to have to stand in line and have to deal with that, so I do the vote by mail. I wonder how safe that is even if you know if someone doesn't throw out my envelope you know i mean well, the whole yeah, system it, seems a little crazy you
2: know, <laughs> you know it's funny i do that too i vote by by absentee and i have for the last several years and it's kind of uh, for that reason because there's still risk um but if you have a paper ballot uh you don't have the ability to have somebody hack into that ballot so Right. You have to have somebody physically there. So your biggest vulnerabilities are really two, number one, that your ballot gets lost or something happens when the U.S. Postal Service is collecting it and, and delivering it. And number two is somebody who shouldn't be trusted is at the actual um, location that receives those physical ballots and decides that they aren't going to uh count some of them or, or add in some of them. So that's, that's, you know, a smaller number of vulnerabilities than if you have a digitized voting process. But mm-hmm. that said, I think we need to have uh, electronic voting to allow more people to vote and to help make sure that those who might not be able to travel on Election Day or get out of their home for any reason. Uh, there's a lot of homebound people that certainly want to participate. I think we need a way to make sure that everybody who's a citizen of the U.S. has an opportunity to cast their vote if they want to vote. Um, so th- there's definitely problems there, but like you said, you know, you have the physical problem, and then you have the problem of making sure that the code has not been fiddled with so that. Um, somebody has tried to throw the actual, um, election. And I have a, a good example of that. Yeah. In, I was going to uh, ask you
1: if you had any examples. Yeah.
2: Y- yeah. Because, you know, who is actually looking at the programs that do the voting, the, the, the programs that collect the votes and then tally the votes. We need to make sure that that is well validated in, um, 2007 there I think it was 2007, 2006 in Virginia um, there was an instance where there was an election and for one of the candidates for it was found after the fact when they did an audit and again there's very few locations that actually do audits after the election is over but after the election for one of the candidates they found that for every 100 votes that she got, there was one vote subtracted because of the way that the um, program was written. (laughs) And when you think about it, you think, okay, because, you know, I started as a systems engineer and I wrote a lot of programs and I'm thinking, that's not an accident to have someone have a tally that goes up to 100 and then subtract one after it gets (laughs) to a certain point. (gasps) <gasps> that oh my that God. sounds like it was pretty purposeful. So, you know, we need to make sure that those who are writing the programs um, actually have the programs vetted and tested thoroughly before they're determined to be uh, fit to actually be used for a real election. Otherwise, you know, if I wanted to write a program and, and throw the the results, you know, that's something that's possible, too, without proper controls and oversight.
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, what a way to end. I can't believe this. Well, well, we're going to have to have you back again, especially after the election and see what what uh, what other interesting tidbits you can tell us. You are always just so enlightening and uh, and inspiring and frightening as well. (laughs) But but we still love you. So just give your one of your websites and uh, it's time for us to go. Okay, Rebecca. Yes, Simbus360,
2: S-I-M-B-U-S 360.com, and that's my new cloud service. So I hope everyone goes out there and checks it out.
1: And then, of course, I'm going to give your other one, privacyprofessor.org. That's a, that's a great one, and they can sign up for your, your wonderful newsletter, can't they?
2: Oh, definitely, and those are free, and they come out each month, so yeah. Um, Please uh, sign up or I'm happy for all the people to get that.
1: Well, thank you so much, and we will have you back again. You take care, okay? Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Stay private.
2: Bye. The opinions right. and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.